Thank you for joining us here on Pro Talks, brief conversations with industry leaders exploring moments that shape their careers, industries, sponsored by the PR office. I'm Ben Judah, and I'm joined today by Jeff Henriksen, founder of and CEO of Thorpe Abbott Capital, an associate fellow of Oxford University Said Business School. Jeff, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, Ben. It's good to be here. Uh, so, Jeff, can you kick us off and just tell us a little bit about yourself? How did you get started? Yeah, so I mean, I got started uh, in finance. Uh, you know, interestingly enough, right around the financial crisis, um, which is an interesting time to get involved in uh, in looking for mispriced assets, because uh, you can really, um, you know, almost uh, birth by fire, if you will. Uh, and uh, but I, you know, I fo- I followed my dad's um, footsteps into finance. He um, spent his whole career. Uh, he was an auditor. Uh, and then was a, uh, a treasurer at a commercial development company, a commercial real estate development company in Houston. And uh, he, uh, when he retired, he really focused all of his efforts on investing, value investing. And I started working with him and just fell in love with the idea of uh, analyzing companies as, you know, these, these, these almost living organisms that, uh, that are, you know, supposed to create value that we need to place a value upon and looking for instances when, uh, the market misprices them. So it, it kind of combined a lot of things that I think I have a natural uh, enjoyment of, which is uh, numbers, financial analysis, but then also the psychology uh, behind kind of understanding why and how humans make mistakes. And so I think both all of that just really interested me. And um, once I kind of really got involved, uh, I just fell in love with it and never looked back. So you say you started just at the beginning of the financial crisis. Uh, yeah. How has how that sort of landscape changed since then you must have started in a really tumultuous time and right you know, did it equal out or do you still see these sort of undulations that maybe you saw back then i mean i think you know obviously that was uh a once in a generation event um and I we hope we hope right I, and i i think i don't i hope you know knock on wood here that uh there won't be anything of that magnitude in, in our lifetime again but um i think you know i, I heard uh one of my uh fund manager role models and, and, and idols, the guy I look up to is a guy named Seth Klarman. And I heard him once say that you can learn a lot about a, um, uh, an investment manager's philosophy if you ask him what year they got in, in the business. And, you know, there's a thing called, uh, in, in the industry, they call people bull market geniuses. So if you happen to get in at a time when the market just went through a very long up, uptrend, you know, you can uh, have a lot of success that, that maybe was just part of a, a general, um, you know, about of good luck that you were you know, in the market at a time where asset prices were largely going up. Um, if you people that get involved in, in, in really ugly markets, we tend to be very conservative because we know how cheap stocks can get. And, and so I think um, th- that's definitely shaped my, uh, my philosophy. But in terms of, you know, market dynamics, I think, you know, the same, um, you know, obviously with a crisis of that magnitude, you have a lot of macro forces, a lot of financial uh, uh, forces that were, you know, wreaking havoc. Uh, that just, I think, magnified the, uh, the, um, the mispricing mechanism that happened. And I think, you know, stocks in, you know, end of 2008, early 2009 were once in a generation kind of low, low prices in terms of finding opportunities. And I don't know if we'll ever see prices that cheap again. I hope, I, I would like to hope that we uh, could see prices closer to being that cheap because that would be a, a great opportunity. But, um, you know, I think, you know, we've moved on from that time. So I think, finding those extremely deep undervalued situations is uh, much more difficult because there's not much opportunity. But, you know, one thing that's consistent about markets is, you know, they, and if, if you're in them long enough, eventually you're going to have instances of mispricing. And so I think as a fund manager, you know, it's your job. You're almost, you have to sit there almost like a, uh, um, 
you know, almost like a uh, like a sniper on a hill looking for mispricings that you can come in and when you see the the market mechanism uh, failing to to value an asset correctly, you can you can jump in there and, and take advantage of it. So I think that that hasn't changed. Two thousand eight, it was just a deluge of of really awesome opportunities for those that were around to take advantage of it. And so when do you think, uh, starting off during that time of, of huge opportunity, uh, left, right and center, where do you think that uh, tailed off and, and how did you as a, as, as a young upstart within that uh, ecosystem change to see less opportunities, less mispricing, uh, stocks perhaps valued slightly higher and difficult decisions having, having to be made that perhaps previously might have been a, a lot more simple? Yeah, I mean, you know, the other thing, well, um, it's... You know, 2009, 10, 11, 12 were, were, you still had a lot of opportunity, I think, but really post 2012, 13, things just fewer and fewer uh, opportunities, I think, presented themselves. And so what you had to really focus on was understanding, you know, whether something was temporarily mispriced or, or was, was permanently, you know, suffering from an erosion of earnings power because kind of post-crisis, you also had this huge wave of companies and of growth companies um, that were wholesale disrupting industries. And so whereas value-oriented investing used to be, I think you had more opportunity to find, uh, you know, fallen angels, if you will, companies that were going through some kind of temporary situation. Now kind of post-crisis, you know, a lot of the things that come into our world, you have to ask a really r real question, which is, you know, is this, you know, it, it appears to mis be mispriced, but it, it might be superficially mispriced in the sense that, you know, it, the earning power of the asset is never going to be what it once was. And so uh, I, my type of investing, value investing, is largely about looking for situations that, uh, like I said, are mean reverting, where the earning power will be restored. And I think in the world we live in now, those still exist, but they're fewer and far between. So I think, you know, you have to be much better at, at, at determining, you know, what is a, uh, in the industry, what we call a value trap, which is a, a, a company that appears to be cheap, but in reality isn't. And what is a true mispricing? And I think, you know, really post 2000, I'd say 13, 14, 15, it just really started to ramp up and become more difficult to truly find those mispriced assets. But uh, they're still out there. You just have to look at them. Uh, you have to look, I think, a lot more thoroughly to find them. And for those who don't know, for those who are, are kind of coming at this with, with really fresh eyes, what exactly is a hedge fund? If you were to explain yeah. it to a, a 10 or 11 year old who, you know, really yeah, is coming out of this as fresh as possible. Right. What is a hedge fund? So, I mean, um, a hedge fund is a, uh, it's, it's a pooled investment vehicle, right? What does that, what does that mean? So if, if I were explaining it to a, a kid, I would say, you know, uh, if you're, if you have a, um, a way that you believe you can invest money to, to, to earn money for others, you know, you create a vehicle that other investors, you know, they could be, um, in our world, they could be high net worth individuals. They could be a larger group like, uh, like an institutional investor, like a pension fund or a college endowment that's looking to put money in a, in a pooled investment vehicle that's managed and invested with a specific strategy. Um, so that's all fun, uh, a hedge fund really is. is uh, the, I'd say the difference, and it would be a little bit, I'm going to get a little nuanced here, so a 12-year-old might not follow me, but uh, you know, traditional mutual funds typically they have much more strict investment mandates. So what they can invest in, they typically can't short. Uh, typically they have to stick pretty close to a benchmark. Hedge funds can, um, we can express views through, um, you know, multiple avenues. So we can go long assets, which means we can bet the prices will rise. 
Uh, but we can look at parts of the market we think are overvalued and we can bet against those. We can go short assets making, uh, bets, or making investments that will pay off if the asset falls in value. So hedge funds have a lot more flexibility. And, and then the other, the other way that I guess most people would define it is that hedge funds, unlike mutual funds that just charge a flat fee, hedge funds, or I, I would argue good hedge funds, should make the majority, if not all their money, from a performance allocation, which means we don't make money unless our investors make money. So we're taking a percent of the profit uh, as opposed to just a flat fee of the assets under management. So that's the big difference. Um, but yeah, they're, they're very flexible investment vehicles that can express uh, a multitude of views through different ways. Most funds like myself tend to be uh, focused on a specific strategy. So we're focused on behavioral mispricings, which means we're looking for situations that we, we believe uh, where the market has failed in its ability to rationally price an asset. And so our, our, our strategy is focused 100% on finding those situations, looking at the assets that come out of those situations, and then really doing a deep dive analysis on each and every one of them to try to confirm whether or not our initial thesis is correct, whether or not the assets are you know, temporarily mispriced for, you know, uh, for mean reverting kind of reasons, or if it's a situation that it's, it's permanently losing value in, in those situations. If anything, you want to bet against those situations. So. And in assets, you mean a, a stock? Yeah, for us, uh, we, we invest predominantly in stocks, so in equity. So if you think about a company uh, that, that is, you know, I don't know, making widgets, um, you know, a company is essentially a collection of assets, both tangible and intangible assets, but then there are claims against those assets. And those claims can come in in, in the form of, uh, of uh, fixed claims, so, so debt instruments where you're having a, uh, a coupon and a, a, that's, that's uh, fixed over a period and, and you get your principal back at the end, or they could be residual interest, which is the equity portion of the claim, and that's a stock, right? So we predominantly are investing in that equity tranche, uh, but we also look at other parts of the capital structure. So we would also, in certain instances, look at debt instruments as well. But yeah, so predominantly for us, it's stocks. So that's a smart 12-year-old that understood that. Yeah, I, yeah, it's, yeah. No, it's, it's, I mean, it's... it's you're looking at, um, so for a 12-year-old, I mean, you know, if, 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 uh, if, if Billy and Susan have a really good lemonade stand down in the corner um, and, uh, and, and Janie and Tommy have a, a really terrible lemonade stand down on another corner, you might take the view that you want to bet on the lemonade stand that's going to do well and bet against the one that's not going to do well. And therefore, we call that hedge out your macro exposure by taking, expressing a long and a short position. And so you would uh, spend your days analyzing, you know, the, the relative lemonade stands to figure out which ones you'd want to invest in, which ones had good products that were unique, good business models, and which they had good management, and which ones were really, you know, uh, had terrible lemonade and were run by, you know, people that didn't know what they were doing, and, and you'd want to bet against those. So it's in a mutual fund, you'd only be able to bet on the long side. You wouldn't be able to go find those crappy lemonade stands to bet against. So as a hedge fund, we can do that. I love that analogy, and I think we've just shaken up the preschool market there right now. Go. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, that's uh, budding hedge fund managers can uh, take note. So, uh, as a, the CEO of a hedge fund, what does an average day look like? I know there's no yeah. such thing, but w what do you do on a normal day? Well, I, you're right. There is no average day. Uh, I would say, for me, my day starts early in the morning. I get up. Uh, I walk you through the whole thing, right? I, I get coffee, and I usually start by reading the paper, uh, Wall Street Journal, Financial Times. Um, I get on Bloomberg, see what happened over the night. So a big part of what we have to do is follow what's going on, not only in financial markets, but what's happening in a variety of, of industries and companies to kind of get the uh, 
the, the, just the lay of the overall land. So at the beginning of my day is kind of just caught up uh, early in the morning reading news. Get into the office, and typically at any one time we'll have um, our funds invested. You know, usually we aim to be in around 20 companies, 20 to 25 companies. So we'll have positions that we're monitoring, monitoring what's happening in the companies. Um, so in the lemonade exa example, you'd want to go around and make sure things are as you think they should be. Um, and then we look, uh, but the, probably the most interesting part of my day and what I really enjoy is looking at new ideas. So, you know, for us, um, we have a uh, pretty sophisticated algorithm that, that, that we've designed to really look for signs of mispricing and behavioral mispricing in particular. And so each morning uh, we get a report that, that will show us if any new ideas have come up on our radar. So the best part of my day is when I get two or three new companies that I get to look at and I'll spend a good chunk of the day you know, reading their financial statements, reading their, uh, their annual report, trying to get a good understanding of, uh, of the industry they're in and, and start making decisions on whether or not we should be invested in, in the company or look to make an investment in the company. Uh, and then I spend a good, like I said, a good chunk of my time also um, analyzing the companies, the investments we've made, make sure our thesis is still intact. And, uh, and, and then, uh, you know, the rest of it I rounded off with uh, running a fund. You always have compliance and things like that that uh, you have to look into as well. So long days, but, but it's very intellectually driven and, and uh, we get to look at a lot of interesting situations, so. So it sounds like looking after that sort of money and for your clients is, is quite a large responsibility. Uh, and my understanding would be that having good communications with those clients is going to be central to, to building that trust. Right, right. What, what would you say good comms looks like in, in hedge funds? I think um, the first and most important thing uh, is for a, I think fund managers have to do a really good job of communicating with their investors. So when we would, in the, in the if you hear the word LP, GP thrown around, typically your LPs or your limited partners as an investor. And as the fund manager, we're the general partners. I think communication needs to start with, uh, the manager needs to do a really good job of conveying how they view the world, what their philosophy is. Um, you know, for us, it's, it's value-oriented, you know, behavioral mispricings. Uh, but for other people that, I mean, you know, I, I know, I know investors, uh, investment managers who run funds that are focused on blockchain, which is not something I'm into, but that's, that's something that they're really into and they have a different philosophy on, on, on and, and the way they look at the world. So the starting point is you, you need investors that have a similar world viewpoint of you that you do. Otherwise, it's probably not going to be a good relationship. Uh, you know, if, an investor who wants to invest in a lot of momentum and growth names would not probably want to be in our fund. And, and, and an investor who looks for more, you know, contrarian, deep value types of situations wouldn't want to be in a growth fund. So I, I think it starts with a, a good communication in terms of, of philosophy of world outlook. Uh, and then, you know, and so how does that happen, right? So we write quarterly letters to our investors. Uh, that's kind of the backbone of what we do. So every quarter we'll write a letter that, that talks about the performance of the quarter, It'll talk about um, you know what went right, what went wrong, and then and then it'll kind of delve into maybe how we view the world uh, and what's going on in the world at the moment, and kind of get more into the in-depth part of our philosophy. So that's where it starts, I think, in, in a written form, and then and then of course any uh, every investor is different. Some want you know just the quarterly updates. Other investors want to have a more regular communication. Um, but you know we view all of our investors as partners, so. If they would prefer to talk on the phone, uh, no problem. If they want to have a, have a coffee, no problem. You know, so I think you know, uh, it, it, in the fund management, it starts conveying a philosophy and then, and then communicating kind of uh, on a case-by-case -case basis for the investors as to what they want. 
And so how would you say the financial field is evolving currently? I know within you know, the tech world, yeah. every, every day you have a new innovation that's going right. to rock the existing world. Yeah. Uh, how yeah. is that happening within the financial world? Yeah, so I mean, there's, um, you know, FinTech is, I think, doing a lot of interesting stuff. Uh, a lot of, I think, um, traditional, a lot of the, um, the, the tasks and, and, and roles that traditional banks and financial institutions have played are, are being uh, to, to a degree disrupted by, you know, companies that like TransferWise is, is a good example we've been talking a lot about lately. Um, so I think there's a lot of, of innovation in the, the fintech space um, in terms of, you know, in investing as well. So you're seeing more automation, um, you know, robo-advisors in, in the asset management world is a big thing now. And I think you're seeing, even in the hedge fund space, you're seeing a lot more quantitative strategies. And so what a, quanti so what a quantitative strategy is, is so we're, we use quant techniques to look for ideas, but at the end of the day, we're picking stocks based on old school fundamental analysis. Um, I mean, I, I use legal pads to, to, you know, I still go, I can go really old school. We use Excel, but I use legal pads. To, uh, to take notes and to go through calculations sometimes. Quant funds, they, you know, they're using an algorithm to basically uh, pick all their investments, to, 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 to make buy decisions, sell decisions, and they've designed algorithms that do this. So that's, a, uh, that's a, you know, an innovation that's come out, um, you know, I'd say in the last 10 years. Kind of related to that is this thing called factor-based investing where instead of uh, looking at specific companies, you decide what types of exposures you want and, and those factors uh, are, are reflections of these exposures. And so the investment decisions are becoming much more mathematically driven. So you've seen that in parts of the market. Um, but then in traditional, you know, kind of value-oriented funds, I think where I see a difference is what we're doing is we're using more of the quant side to help um, cut the investment universe down to more manageable number of the most promising ideas to look at. So we've really embraced technology on what we would call our search strategy. And so and that's another hedge fund term, right? So, you know, search strategy is like, so for instance, United States, there's about 3,800, give or take, um, publicly traded uh, companies on the NYSE, NASDAQ, and all the different, or the NYSE, NASDAQ exchanges, and the American Stock Exchange. So practically speaking, that's a lot of companies to look at. So when we say search strategies, how do we, um, you know, narrow the the investment universe down to the most, you know, promising part of the chessboard, and that's kind of what search is. So we use technology to help with that. But then, you know, in terms of how we look at a company, nothing I would say has changed in terms of how we, you know, measure and and and, and uh, how companies, you know, create and how we measure value that they do create. That's traditional. That's been unchanged forever. The same principles that. Uh, that Ben Graham and, and, and who taught Warren Buffett, um, for those of you who know who Warren Buffett is, you know, I think a lot of those principles are still in place, but I think the way that we implement them is, is being changed by technology. Um, but, you know, at the end of the day, uh, the one golden rule in finance will always say the same, which is, you know, uh, you want to buy low and you want to sell high. So I don't see that changing. But the way we go about, you know, trying to determine what is a, uh, the, the point at which you buy to get the, the, low, the, the low valuation and, and then how you – uh, how long you choose to stay in a company once you own it, that's being changed. But the general idea is the same. So, um, so I'm going to change, uh, go completely in a different direction now and ask, you know, you, you're, you're an associate fellow at Oxford University. Yeah. Um, how does a thing like that happen? Is that something that you've yeah. been working towards for a while? Is it an aspiration you'd had uh, growing up? How, I mean, how do you even get there? It, you know, I, I uh, so I, I, first went to Oxford in, uh, God, it would have been November of 2014. 
And, uh, you know, I'm a big believer at least once a year in going and uh, taking a course of some sort to just stay sharp. And, and they offered an evaluation program there that, uh, that I had wanted to do for a long time. So 14, I, I, November 14, I get to go take it and just had a great time. Fell in love with Oxford, with the, the business school there, Saeed, and grabbed a brochure on the executive MBA program on the way out the door. Uh, plane back, I read it, read through it, and was like, this looks really interesting. Uh, got off the plane, wife picks me up at the airport, and I, I asked her, I said, well, hey, you know, I really had a great time. I might apply to this. It's a two-year program, but, you know, if I got in, would you, you know, would you be, uh, you know, keen on moving to England? And she's like, you know, you kidding me? I'd love that. So, <laughs> so I applied, and, and uh, I got invited to interview, uh, and then she flew over during the interview, and she loved it, and so put more pressure on me. So I interviewed, and, and uh, you know, uh, by luck, maybe, I hope I wasn't a mistake in the admissions process, I got in and, uh, and, and, and uh, started the program in, you know, 2015, uh, pretty much in January 2015, so pretty quick. So the two-year program, and then while I was there, um, I, uh, I got to know uh, a guy named Andreas Angelopoulos, who ran the Oxford Finance Lab, which is a, uh, basically, they, the idea behind the lab that Andreas created was to take an investment banking training program and put it inside the university. So it's very hands-on um, valuation, uh, case studies, you know, really getting into the weeds on everything from, you know, understanding private equity and LBOs to, to mergers and acquisitions. It was a great program. And, and so I, I participated in it while I was there. And, and when I got done, Andreas asked me if I would be interested in uh, helping him teach the next year. And I, at the time, I was still in the process of putting our fund together, but I had some extra extra time and I always like to it's not something I've told you before but I, once upon a time I I actually enjoyed uh, I lived in LA I took a class on stand-up comedy I, I love to get up and talk to people and I, I desperately try to be funny but uh, in any event I I thought it would be fun to teach I'd never really taught before so um, he uh, so I, I, I started teaching with him and that led to me getting a fellowship there and I taught there for uh, two years in the lab and uh, now I'm back in the US but I still come over uh, once a year and teach on a on an executive ed program and, uh, and and maintain a fellowship, so it kind of fell into it. Uh, some of it was right place at right time, but uh, but yeah. So it started with just a single trip over to uh, the UK, and the next thing you know, I was here for three years and ended up becoming a fellow. Wow, amazing! Dangerous trip to London. Yeah, 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 they, yeah. That was, but but it was serendipity, I guess. Worked out, worked out well. Awesome. So, um, if you were to start your career over from you know day one of walking into your first job. Um, what if, if anything, would you do differently? I mean, I guess part of me, I'd think I wouldn't do anything differently, right? Because I'm pretty happy with where I'm at. Um, That's what a lot of people tend to say. Yeah, yeah, right. I mean, I, I, um, you know, I studied history as an undergraduate. I used to think at one point that I would have, I would have, because I went back and did a master's in finance. So I used to think maybe I would have studied you know, maybe economics or something that was more uh, business oriented than history. But then, you know, I found that history has actually been a very, uh, really good background for finance because it gives you perspective. And uh, so I don't think I'd change what I study. Um, I probably would have gone, you know, I, 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 like I said, I came into finance a little bit later in life than most do. I would have probably gotten involved uh, in finance sooner. I would have, um, you know, maybe right out of school as opposed to, uh, I mean, at one point I was, uh, you know, going to be, I wanted to go to law school and kind of, I didn't go to law school, but I, I explored that for a while. I, I would have probably gone directly into finance, but you know, at the same time, it's, it's sometimes you have to try a lot of different things to figure out what you're good at and what you enjoy. So 
I don't want to give a canned answer, but I, yeah, I don't think I would, I wouldn't change much. Um, you know, I would, I, I would have, I, I would have participated in the Google IPO. I'd have done that differently. <laughs> um, so finally, h how can people get in touch with you? How can people see what's going on? What's next with, uh, with yourself and with Thorpe Abbott Capital? Yeah, so I mean, um, we can, uh, so I write on Forbes, so I, I have a, a column that I put up, uh, I try to do a monthly column on Forbes, um, and then, uh, and they, you know, my email address is on there, um, I, they can email me questions, I'm happy to, 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 uh, to, to um, you know, talk about any, any finance related topic, um, but uh, yeah, yeah, I mean, and as a, as a fund, you know, we, uh, we, we can't, uh, in, in the U.S., we have very specific rules about solicitation, so I, I, uh, I'm happy to talk about, uh, you know, non-fund-related uh, topics, uh, generally about finance, uh, world worldviews, things like that. So, yeah. Amazing. Thanks so much for your time. It's been really great to talk to you. Likewise, Ben. Thank you very much. The PR office is a top 150 agency in London. Check out their website at theproffice.co.uk.